0: All right, welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, We are continuing today with fluids, electrolytes, and acid base as part of our site series. Uh, These questions on the site and boards tend to be pretty straightforward, especially if you know the content. As a reminder, this chapter is also in our site series published on Amazon. Uh, Be sure to give it a look.
1: Okay, so let's get started. Let's just jump right into it with some fluids, electrolytes, and acid base.
2: Yeah, and we'll try and make this as least painful as possible. <laughs> um, I actually didn't realize how much of a percentage of the exam was fluid, electrolytes, acid, base. So, uh, so we'll try and hit the high points. So we'll start setting our baseline of fluid stats. So what, what is our percentage of total body water by weight in an adult?
1: So typically, I think it's different for men or women. It depends on how much of your is body fat. But I think a typical equation is you take your uh, body weight and 5 uh, times 0.5 uh, uh, for men and 0.6 for women.
2: Yeah, and I think generally the, the exam will use 0.6. I think that's the most widely accepted. So for a 70-kilogram male, that would be 42 liters of total body water. And what percentage of that is intracellular? Most
1: of it, so about two thirds of it, uh, generally speaking, is uh, intracellular. Intracellular, I believe.
2: Okay, good. And then we have the extracellular compartment, and that we can break down into intravascular and extravascular. And so, how much of extracellular water is intravascular?
1: Uh, a lower percentage of it, so you know, 25 percent, I believe.
2: Yeah, so it's about a quarter is a quarter is uh, intravascular, and the other three quarters is extravascular. And then what's the blood volume for our 70-kilogram man?
1: I think on average you're looking at about 5 liters.
2: Yeah, so, so by body weight, it's about 7%, and, and that's the way I remember it. Five liters in a 70-kilogram male gives you about 7%. How about in a pediatric patient? Ooh, gosh, I don't know. Oh, I don't remember John? the
0: equation. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of the equation. I can't think of it. I don't remember.
2: So for a, kid, for a pediatric patient, it's 80 cc's per kilogram. And, and when we talked about transfusion, we generally consider massive transfusion a half of their total blood volume, which is 40 cc's per kilogram. Oh, okay. But 80 cc's per kilogram would be their entire blood volume. Okay, so, so I think we can break our fluids down into maintenance fluids and resuscitative fluids. So so what would be our common maintenance fluids?
0: Well, D5, half normal saline with 20 uh, millicolins of potassium is our typical one. Um, okay.
2: Okay, so generally it would be it would be a D5, and I'd say our most common D5 half normal. Uh, anybody we would use D5 quarter normal on?
0: Uh, kids, you would use some kids.
2: Yeah, babies. Mm-hmm. So, so babies after seven days, you want to use quarter normal. And then how about our resuscitative fluids?
0: Uh, that's your typical, your LR, normal saline
2: fluids. Okay, so your crystalloids would be LR or NS. Mm-hmm. And what other types of resuscitative fluids do we have?
0: Oh, uh, you can also use your colloids uh, and plasma as well.
2: Okay, so then we have our colloids, and we'll break those down in a little bit later. And of course, you know, you always have to remember the electrolyte concentration of these fluids. So the easiest way is just start with normal saline. So, what does normal saline have in it?
1: Sodium and chloride.
2: Yep. What are the concentrations?
1: Uh one fifty-four milliequivalents per liter.
2: Good. So one 15- fifty. 154 for both of them, so then you automatically can do the math, and half is 77. Um, how about LR?
1: Uh, so LR is, has a lower sodium concentration. So the, the um, composition is 130 of sodium, 109 of chloride. Um, there's four milliequivalents of potassium and four milliequivalents of, of calcium, um, and then some bicarbonate, the 28 of bicarbonate.
2: Good. And, and the important, the way to remember that is it's closer to physiologic. The other thing to remember about, it does have potassium. So if, if you get the patient who's hyperkalemic and they give you a choice of fluids, LR w- would be the wrong choice in the patient who's already hyperkalemic. Okay, so we, all, we always have to calculate maintenance fluid. So what, what's, what's our easy way of calculating maintenance fluid for a patient who, and this is the uvolemic patient who is NPO.
0: So that oh. I think I, the answer you could use is the four rule. one rule, um, right. but I think the easier way of doing it uh, I think is the one hundred fifty twenty rule. That's the same thing. Okay,
2: I, I think they're th- those are both equally as as easy. So four two, one gives you the hourly rate. Right. One hundred fifty twenty gives you the daily amount you want to give them. Um, so four cc's per kilo for the first ten. T- two cc's for the next 10 and then for every kilo after 20 it's one cc and that gives you your hourly rate uh is, is there a quicker and easier method for, for anybody in normal weight range you uh, just add 40 to their weight <laughs> and that
1: just I'm give kidding. you your, your maintenance
2: rate yeah once you get to 20 kilos and above weight plus 40 is, is the easy way to remember that okay so that re- that gives, that replaces your water that you need for the day and then we also want to replace our electrolytes mainly sodium and potassium so how much sodium generally does a person need per day, or do they lose per day?
0: Uh, 70 to 140 equivalents a day.
2: Yeah, so so you do that by weight, so generally 1 to 2 equivalents per keg. So for the 70-kilogram 70, 70 man, it would be 70 to 140. Um, so a liter of half normal would have 77 equivalents per liter, so... When you give them about two liters or more of half-normal and you've met their sodium requirements for the day. How about potassium? Uh,
1: potassium, it's about the same. It's a little bit less, uh, 0.5 to 1 milliequivalent per kilogram per day.
2: Yeah, so, so it's about half of what you need for sodium. So for 70-kilogram person, again, it's 70 mq, uh per day, uh, which can, can easily be met with 20 to 30 equivalents per liter of potassium added to your fluids. Um, If you're having high losses from some other source, you might need to increase that. So sugar or salt? So when would you use a D5 solution?
1: Mm -hmm. Somebody who's hypernatremic?
0: Yeah, you need free water.
2: No I, no, I mean when you can give a person half-normal saline or you can give them D5 half-normal saline.
1: Oh, I see. Oh, children. Uh, you would use it in well, children. people who are NPO, it can be um, you know protein-sparing, uh, as they say, if you add a little dextrose into it.
2: Good. Yeah, that's the whole rationale is you give them some amount of calories that theoretically should prevent them from breaking down their own proteins. So how much dextrose would that be in a liter of D5, D5-anything?
1: Uh so let's see
2: um we well, be... have
1: 3.4 calories per gram so in a oh, liter
2: that's, that's the color. I don't know
1: yeah I don't know how to do the math how much is in a liter
2: so how many grams so it's 5% so it's 50 grams per liter okay so you know so that gives you a little over hundred fifty kcals per liter, which should be should give you protein sparing so anyone on maintenance fluid usually you want to put them on D 5 solution okay, so we have a 25 year old male who's eighty kilograms who had an appy he's NPO, and you want to put him on maintenance fluid so what fluid and rate are you going to write him for?
0: I think the easiest way is to uh, use the f- weight plus forty so I would put him in hundred 120- twenty. Uh, milliliters an hour uh and i guess you could if you're considering doing lr versus uh, d5 half normal saline with 20 of k
2: good so d5 half normal 20k is fine 120 cc's an hour okay now you have a 14 kilogram child
1: so that one you'd use the 421 so 40 and then plus uh uh 8 so uh 48
2: okay and what fluid
1: uh, for, I mean, D5 half normal, uh, if it's an infant or uh, 14 kilograms, it, it should be D5
2: half normal plus 20 K. Good. Yeah. D5 half or D5, D5 quarter if it was a, an infant, but uh, this one's a little bigger. Okay. So now you have a 48 year old female who has been vomiting for three days. Can't tolerate PO. She comes in, she's tachycardic, blood pressure is okay. And she has low urine output. So what do you want to do for this person? Starter on D five half at one hundred cc's per hour.
1: No, no, So this person needs resuscitation. So they need a resuscitative fluid. Um, it's gastric uh, contents. Um, uh, you, you, you should probably replace that with normal saline.
2: Okay, so this is a patient we would give resuscitative boluses. And, and in general, how much fluid would you bolus this person with?
1: Um.
2: If, Probably, you know, a liter or so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they respond. Yeah, for standard crystalloid, usually about a liter at a time. And how much of that will stay intravascular? About a quarter of it. Good. So 200, 250 cc's. Okay. Then we have our colloid solutions. And, and we won't spend a lot of time on this. You, you, you may not get a question about colloids. Um They've generally been shown to have no benefit over crystalloids in, in almost every indication. There, there's still some controversy for sepsis, but, but otherwise, generally, the, they're just more expensive. Um, but how, how do colloids increase your intravascular volume?
0: So, this protein causes like an oncotic pressure inside the, in the vessel and it like draws fluid back in.
2: So. Okay, good. Uh, but what will happen in an inflammatory condition? where you have increased capillary permeability?
0: Uh, well, I think it was that those proteins won't stay in the vessel. they actually leak out, and then it draws the fluid with it.
2: Good. And and in general, what are our colloids that we have currently available?
0: Uh, Some ones that I've seen that we use a lot are the albumin and plasminate. Um, I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones out there, too. Um, okay, so,
2: so we have our natural and we have our synthetics. Mm-hmm. Our naturals would be the albumin products, and our synthetics?
0: Uh, synthetics would be like your, your head of starch. And yeah,
2: it would, be the, it would be the starch compounds, head of starch, hespan. And any adverse effects of giving those fluids? Any adverse effects of the synthetic colloids? Hextend, hespan.
1: Uh, I think it can result in uh, coagulopathy.
2: Good. So one is if you give enough of it. And why do they get coagulopathic? Or what aspect does it affect?
1: Uh, it, do you dilute out your, co- your coagulation factors?
2: No, it actually affects platelet function. Uh, okay. So they negatively affect platelet function. The, the other adverse impact, especially of the, the uh, starches, has been acute kidney injury uh, in ICU patients. And again, okay. that's another reason why we've gone away from them. Um,
0: does that platelet dysfunction come with even the albumins?
2: No, that's oh, what the synthetic. That's just synthetic. So okay. if they give you a dextran or a head of starch, you know, Hespan, Hextend product, and, you know, they ask you, you give, you know, a large volume of it, what's its effect? It's going to be platelet inhibition. Okay, okay we, uh, we also worry about insensible losses. Sometimes there's a general question on this. What, what are the things that increase insensible losses in patients we would be taking care of?
0: Uh, prolonged operations, uh, patients who have with, burns. Oh, with
2: an open cavity.
0: Yeah, uh, burns are
1: obviously a huge one. Uh, and then fevers and oh, yeah. people who are on vents yeah, fevers would be insensible a, losses.
2: is a huge one and then people on vents. And, and generally, each degree Celsius increase in your temperature increases your insensible losses by about 10%. So let, let's go through replacing some ongoing losses. So So we have the patient who's got high NG tube output. And you want, to normal re- saline. you want to replace that? Good, normal saline. How about the patient with a high volume bile leak? Uh, LR. Okay. And why do you choose LR instead of NS?
1: Uh, because if they have, a, if for an ongoing bile leak, they're losing bicarb. Good. So you can so want want replace it with bicarb.
2: So it could either be LR or you could give them a, a D five solution with bicarb added. Mm-hmm. How about the patient with colitis and severe diarrhea?
1: Uh, for that one, I think also you would choose uh, LR.
2: So you definitely want to give them something with bicarb. What else will they? Will they? What other electrolyte abnormality will they get?
1: Uh, hypokalemia.
2: Yeah, for potassium losses. Huge potassium losses in stool. And so, so if we look at our electrolyte concentrations in our GI secretions, generally, most of them past the stomach look like normal saline. So usually, you want to use normal saline. Um, the bile, as you said, bile and pancreatic, you are also going to lose a lot of bicarb, and colon, you're going to lose a lot of potassium.
1: I've seen that question a couple times, actually, Is on some of the test banks, is where does your largest GI loss of potassium come from? It's the colon.
2: So. Yep, and that's that's the colon, and that's the patient. You'll, you'll get significant hypokalemia. Okay, well, as long as we're talking about electrolytes, let's talk about electrolyte abnormalities. So, we'll start with sodium. So, we have a... 37 year old female had an open coli. She's post day two. She's NPO. Her sodium is 129. She's awake, alert, and afebrile. So, so what do we think is the cause of her hyponatremia? And what are our treatment yeah, options? Yeah, definitely,
0: definitely seeing questions of this. Most likely it's iatrogenic. So, you've gotten a lot of crystalloid from LR uh, in the operating room.
2: Okay. So, it could be dilutional. Uh, uh, what, are, what are some other causes?
1: So, like, SIADH uh, would be a, a common problem post-op or, you know, post-traumatic.
2: Good. So, yeah, and and on the exam, I think it's either going to be excess-free water or it's going to be SIADH. Or she and, be and diabetic. Well, what's that?
0: She could also be diabetic, if you
2: think of, like, a yeah, pseudo.
1: Well,
2: and that's the thing you're trying to figure out. And then, and then you can get the pseudo-hyponatremia from? Uh, hyperglycemia. From
1: hyperglycemia or hyper, you
2: know, um high triglycerides um, anything with anything with high proteins so hyperproteinemia and hyperglycemia okay so how do we make the diagnosis in this hyponatremic patient
1: uh, so we'll calculate um, their you know serum osms usually you'd figure out their serum osms and their 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 measured serum osms versus their calculated serum osms good um, would be a good place to start
2: okay And how do we calculate serum osms?
1: Uh, So you have your three, so you look at your chemistry, and your three main components are sodium, glucose, or your three components are sodium, glucose, and your your BUN. So the equation is two times the sodium um, plus the glucose divided by 18, and then plus the BUN divided by 2.8. So the sodium is the main contributor.
2: Good. So, so the quick and dirty is you multiply sodium by two and that gets you in the ballpark. Um, the simple way I remember it is sodium times two and then plus 10 for someone who's got normal glucose and normal renal function. So so unless they give you a patient whose glucose is out of whack or who's in renal failure and has an elevated BUN, it's, it's generally going to be twice your sodium plus 10. And And then what do we want to compare that to to figure out if this is excess free water or if this is S-I-A-D-H?
1: So they're osms.
2: Good. So if it's S-I-A-D-H, what's going to be the serum osomes and the urine osms?
1: So let me think, I got to think this out. So if, you're, if it's S-I-A-D-H, your serum osm is going to be lower than your osm. So your urine osmolality is going to be inappropriately, your urine's going to be inappropriately concentrated.
2: Yeah, so serum osomes are going to be low and osms are going to be high. Which is which is inappropriate because if it's excess free water, then what what's that relationship going to be?
1: Uh, if it's excess free water, um, you're going to be trying to you're going to be trying to get rid of uh, free water, so your urinazms are going to be low.
2: Yeah. So just remember your your serum osm and urinazm should all, always be in the same direction. So if they're both low, you know that that's normal, and you're talking about excess free water. If they're in the opposite direction, then you have SIADH. Um, and same thing if they're high. If the serum osms are high, urine osms should be high. And if they're not high, then you're probably talking about a pathologic entity like diabetes insipidus. Okay, so we made our diagnosis. How do we want to treat this patient? Let's say serum osms are low and urine osms are low. Uh, fluid restrict. Okay, let's say serum osomes are low, uranosomes are high.
1: Well, that, I think you'd still fluid restrict that patient.
2: Okay, and then if that doesn't work, so that's S-I-A-D-H. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if that doesn't work, um, you can... Um,
2: so first off, let's say, let's say she's now symptomatic. Sodium's 120.
1: Uh, you can give uh, hypertonic saline.
2: So you can start replacing sodium. Usually you want to start with an isovolemic, like an NS, because that will raise the sodium, uh, or or you can go to hypertonic. Um, You do need to be careful, though, um, because how quickly do you want to correct this sodium?
1: Uh, Generally like a half or to one milliequivalent per hour.
2: Yeah, no more than one milliequivalent per hour. Okay, and then are there any other... Treatments we can give for this patient with hyponatremia. Any other drugs we can treat them with?
0: Um, the aptans. I can't remember them off the top of my head.
2: Yeah. So, so there's two. There's two drugs you can use. One is Dimeclacycline, mm. which, which is an old antibiotic, uh, but it also treats SIADH. It essentially will cause a diabetes insipidus. And then you mentioned the Vaptans. So, toll tolvaptan. Those are the newer drugs for hyponatremia. What do those do? I
0: assume they have some type of diuretic effect or with these. So
2: so they're vasopressin antagonists. Oh, okay. And so they antagonize vasopressin receptors in the kidney. And do do you know which type of vasopressin receptors those are? Uh, uh v1
0: no v2. v2 yeah v2 v1 yeah. is your, your arterial
2: v, v1 are the systemic ones you know when you give vasopressin for blood pressure and v2 are the kidney ones uh where essentially it'll, it'll work like adh okay so we have this hyponatremic patient and we want to figure out how much sodium we need to give them <laughs> so we always have to calculate our sodium deficit right so how do we calculate sodium deficit
0: um, so you would, um, so you have your, you have your equation for this, uh, or typically what I do is just guess in the middle of the, the ABCDs. Um, but no, I, for your calculation of your sodium deficit, you take your desired sodium and you subtract, you subtract your actual sodium and then you take that Good. times your total body weight.
2: Yeah. So, so it's easy to confuse the calculation for sodium deficit and for free water deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them involved subtracting the or taking the normal sodium and, and subtracting the actual, just remember you always want to put the higher of those sodiums first. So for this one, your sodium is going to be low. So you want your desired sodium minus your actual sodium, multiply that by total body water, which should be again for a 70 kilogram man or woman, 42 liters. And that will give you your sodium deficit. Um, the other way I remember that how to differentiate these equations, remember one, one of them you have to divide by the desired sodium and one you don't. And, and the sodium deficit is the one where you don't have a denominator. And I just remember that sodium deficit is, is NAD or no denominator. Oh, okay. And the, oh, nice. And yeah. then the free water deficit is the one where you have to have the denominator. So sodium deficit is the easier one. Desired minus actual times total body weight. And that will give you your mill equivalents of sodium that you have to give them back. And then you can just calculate how to give them back from the content of whichever fluid you're using.
0: Or we can just call
1: nephrology, too.
2: Yeah. Or you can plug it into medi which <laughs> you're not going to have on your boards. I
1: don't so think you can use that on the upside.
2: <laughs> not yet. Okay, let's talk about hypernatremia, then. So what are the causes of hypernatremia? The patient's got a sodium of 160.
1: Uh, So this is anything that uh, causes you to lose free water. So um, insensible losses, you know, again, fevers. um, You have your diabetes insipidus, different types of diabetes insipidus. Um, uh, Probably the most common is iatrogenic through uh, administration of uh, normal saline. Um, And then you you can diurese somebody to to be hypernatremic.
2: Good. And and I think on the app site, they are... They're almost always going to give you – it's either DI or exogenous administration, and you're trying to figure which of those two it is. Um, And and the exogenous administration can usually be either by fluids or oftentimes by tube feeds, especially the concentrated tube feeds when you're not also giving them enough free water. Mm So let's say we have this 20-year-old guy, had a car crash. He's got a large subdural. And suddenly, his urine output increases to 700 cc's an hour for three hours, and the sodium goes up to 165. How do we figure out what's going on? So, first off, just by the story, <laughs> you should know the answer.
1: Yeah, I had yeah, so like a, a central diabetes insipidus.
2: So that's that's di. But h- how would we make the diagnosis?
0: Uh, well, you can calculate your free water deficit.
2: Well, that just tells you your free water deficit. It doesn't oh. tell you what caused it.
1: Um, well, you can give, uh, give desmopressin and see how it responds.
2: Well, no. We, I mean, we just talked about oh, this. Oh, yeah. My, well, we, you can look right? at
0: your urine output, your urine-specific your gravity. Your oh, sodium, right. Okay.
1: Your yeah, serum sodium. so it's
2: sodium. serum osms to urine Same mm-hmm. thing for, for, any, for any sodium issue, right? So here, your serum osms are going to be high. So what should your urinosoms be?
0: Uh, they should be also should be high. Yeah.
2: They should be high. And if they are, then that's ex- you've given them excess sodium. And if your urinosomes are low? Well, that means that uh, um, What's your diabetes? Your, well, the diabetes insipidus. DI. Yep. So if they're in the opposite direction, that's DI. If they're in the same direction, they're both high, then that's exogenous sodium administration. Okay. So what do we want to do for this patient? So this uh, give, this one, give them
1: back free water.
2: It's, it's di. You figure it out.
1: Uh, so you for typically you want to replace their free water. So you you calculate the free water deficit and then you give that uh, to them um, with giving the first half over the first you know uh, eight hours. Yeah, but, then, if, but
2: uh, if, they're tr- if they're true di, they're just going to keep pouring that out in their urine. Right, Until so something to stop that.
1: You can do DDAVP. So you can, if it's central diabetes insipidus, you can treat with with desmopressin. If it's a nephrogenic, they're not going to respond to that, and you're just going to have to pump them full a lot of a lot of uh, free water to yeah. keep so up this, with it.
2: So this patient, and when they give it to them on the app site, if it's DI, the answer is going to be DDAVP. So you give them DDAVP. You did mention calculating the free water deficit. So so we'll say this another patient who's been on tube feeds. For days and now their sodium has gone 150 155 159 and you check urine and serum osms and they're both high mm-hmm. so what are you going to do for that patient
1: so that patient you just you need to replace their free water they're not okay. getting an adequate replacement of their free water and their tube feeds
2: and then how would we calculate their free water
0: so actual sodium minus desired sodium divided by your desired sodium and then you take that times your total body water
2: good and that will give you a volume in liters that you need to give them. So how are you going to give that back to them? What are you going to write for?
1: Uh, D5W.
2: Okay. So it depends if you're going to give it IV or enteral, right? So, yeah. So right. if you're giving it IV, then it's D5W. That's your free water. And and if it's Enerol, you can just give them free water, whatever that volume is that they need. Mm-hmm. okay how fast do you give that
0: back then it's actually this is more of a clinical question than an absolute question
2: so so I, I would I would go by about the same thing as hypo okay you know you, you don't want to correct too quickly So I think no more than one mil equivalent per hour and probably no more than 10 mil equivalents per day okay um, but but if they ask you a question about correcting too quickly it's going to be hyponatremia correcting too quickly yeah okay mm-hmm so, so let's move on to potassium, and 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 I think most people are familiar with this. So we we will breeze through it. So you've got a fifty five year old female with chronic renal failure. She's got a potassium of seven point five. What are we going to do?
1: So, so we're going to get uh so we're going to get an EKG um, and see if she has any EK, any um, uh, changes on her EKG. Um, and we're going to give her a, a cardiac The first thing you are going to do is give a cardiac stabilizing medication, so the calcium. Um, and then there's several different things you can do to, to lower the potassium.
2: Good. So, and, and I think that's that's probably a question every year.
1: Yeah, I know. I see that everywhere.
2: You give them the calcium first to stabilize the myocardium. So, most common causes of hyperkalemia uh,
1: renal failure in the um, in the hospitalized patient. A lot of times, uh, you know, so cell tumor lysis or cell, cell lysis. Um, we get asked a lot about, um, you know, succinylcholine and the depolarizing and neuromuscular blockers, especially in like, burn patients. Yep. Uh, things like diuretics, um, there can be, um, you know, endocrine dysfunction that can cause hyperkalemia.
2: Okay. The, those those would be the big ones. And renal failure definitely the most common. And the, EK, the t- characteristic EKG finding: Peak T waves. Okay. And then you can also get. Blocks in your conduction system, and then finally ventricular arrhythmias uh, if it gets, uh, you know, high enough. And so, what are the what are our treatment options for hyperkalemia? And again, this patient has a K of seven point five. You give them the calcium, then what else can we give them? Start bringing the potassium down.
1: Yeah, so So you can give them uh, glucose with IV insulin. Uh, You can give them sodium bicarb. you can give them for a longer acting thing uh,
2: sodium bicarb would usually be the next thing I would reach for if it's okay. that because it, it'll be the next factus, the fastest acting agent insulin okay, so. glucose what else can we do
1: uh, give them uh, Lasix uh, I can diurese off some of the, the, the potassium um, there are you know the resin the uh, resins that help them secrete or excrete uh, the potassium k um, I guess you can do, you know, if, if you need to, you can do emergent dialysis uh, to take the potassium out. Don't forget
0: about albuterol. Um,
1: oh, and of course albuterol. Of course.
2: <laughs> Which, uh, I, yeah, I, I get to see that. That probably
1: out. won't be the answer on the test.
2: <laughs> yeah, but, but good. And dialysis would, would be your answer for this patient who's critically high. Um, the the thing with k axalate or the resins is you... Who would you give that to and who wouldn't you give that to? Uh,
1: the residents? Uh, I guess you wouldn't give it to people who are, have a bowel obstruction.
2: Yeah, they, or... have to, they have to have GI function for those to yeah. work. Those also take a while. Okay, so now we have the patient who's got a K of 2.5. five. Um, what is? What do we think is the most common cause of that?
0: Uh, usually it's from overdiuresis or some iatrogenic reason.
2: Good. Yeah. That that's almost always iatrogenic, and what does that when they go from four, their K of four to a K of three, what does that tell you about their total body potassium deficit?
0: Oh, so the, that's uh, pretty actually nicely easy calculated. So their total body would be uh, if it's a drop of one milliequivalent, it's about a hundred to two hundred uh, milliequivalents total body deficit.
2: Good. Yeah. Remember. K is your primary intracellular cation, so you're measuring the extracellular to try and get a picture. So, so you can have pretty significant body store depletion with just a small drop. And, we, you know, we always use the rule. So if you give them 40 milliequivalents of potassium, how much should that increase their potassium level?
0: It should go up four.
2: Yeah, it should go up four. Right, yeah, Point up four. Up four, right? So, so about 0.1 for every 10 milliequivalents you give them. Okay, let's move on to calcium. So the patient had a total thyroidectomy, and the calcium comes back at 6.2. So what physical exam findings might be present? To so you could,
1: you, have, know. Uh, you, know, you could have weakness, perioral, perioral numbness and tingling. Um, oh. You can have uh, you know, the, the Chvostek's and Trousseau signs.
2: Um, okay. so probably most
1: likely would be, would be the perioral numbness would be the most common. Yeah, and
2: then the Trostex sign.
1: That's when you like tap on the face and then they get the little,
2: um, twitches. Yeah. So you're tapping on the facial nerve and Trousseau's is the, the, uh, spasm with blood pressure cuff. So how would you treat this patient?
1: Uh, so with, um, uh, IV calcium.
2: Good. And, and what else do we usually want to give them?
0: Well, the same thing as, uh, hypokalemia, you give them magnesium as well.
2: Yeah, and, and generally D. you also want you also want to give them vitamin D to correct their mm. calcium. Levels. Yeah, okay. And what if this patient had a low serum albumin? How would we correct their serum calcium level?
1: Uh, so an easy way to do it is to think for every uh, point. So you take four as normal for albumin, and for every point below four, you add point eight to the to the calcium level, and that'll give you your corrected
2: calcium. Good. So if this patient's albumin was 2, we would add 1.6 to that calcium level, so it would probably be in the normal range. Okay, hypercalcemia. Um, what are the main causes of hypercalcemia?
1: So well, yeah. like hyperparathyroidism would be uh, would be a very common cause
2: of hypercalcemia. Yep,
0: and what else? Hyperparathyroidism, and also in breast cancer malignant causes.
2: Okay. So, so most common cause of hypercalcemia in an inpatient? Iatrogenic? Cancer. Cancer, most, okay. Most common cause in an outpatient?
1: Oh, hyperparathyroidism. Yeah, I remember that, the little most common, yeah. Inpatient, uh, malignancy, outpatient, hyperparathyroidism, yep. yeah.
2: And the symptoms of hypercalcemia? Symptoms
1: Those are signs. Uh, Those are the stones, bones, groans, um, and psychic overtones, so uh, you have um, you know kidney stones, um, you have bone pain from uh, osteolysis, you have uh, abdominal pain from for the groans, um, and then you can have some some uh, psychosis as well.
2: okay, and what's your treatment going to be for this patient got a, uh, got a calcium of ten point five
1: uh, so usually you start with volume, uh, so crystalloid. Um, uh, you run crystalloids at like two or 300 an hour, and then your loop diuretics.
2: Good. It's volume expansion, a loop diuretic. Uh, and then what are some other medications we can use to treat this?
0: So if it's for cancer, um, you can also use your bisphosphonates. I've seen a question on that before. Yep. Um, and,
2: and, and those would be very good for hypercalcemia caused by what?
0: Uh, by like a cancer. Yeah, else.
2: those are those are if the, if it's a question on cancer hypercalcemia and a medication, that's going to be your answer of bisphosphonate. What else can we give them?
0: You can do calcitonin as well, uh, good another option, uh, and then glucocorticoids are always good too.
2: Yep. And then finally, if they're critically high, you and especially if they have renal dysfunction, you can dialyze them. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to acid base. So, what is the most important parts? Of the ABG, in terms of, you know, you're going to get some acid based questions on the exam. I guarantee it. And and what are the most important parts of the blood gas to look at to sort those out?
1: Uh, so I guess the most important part. So you look at the you know, first. I look at the pH to see whether they're, they're acidotic, alkalotic, and then generally I'll look at the um, CO2 and at the bicarb, um, and generally yeah. in that order.
2: Yeah. So. And, and and I would actually argue the pH is less important, uh, and and I'll talk about how I like to do these. But but PCO2, and then either the bicarb or base excess, base deficit, whichever one they give you, they'll usually give you one or the other. Um, so how does elevated CO2 cause acidosis? Getting back to those chemistry formulas, what does that CO do? What happens to that CO2 that forms an acid?
1: So it binds with water and uh, forms of uh, carbonic
2: acid. Good. And then when we, we talk about we talk about compensation, and we can, mm-hmm. we can compensate respiratory, and we can compensate metabolically, which of those happens rapidly?
1: So your respiratory, your respiratory compensation happens very rapidly, where the metabolic takes a little bit longer.
2: Good. So we'll talk about normal values. What's your normal PCO2? 35
0: to 45.
2: Yeah, so I would just use 40, oh. normal pH.
0: guess you'd use uh, like
2: 7.4. 7.4, normal bicarb?
0: Ooh, 24, I think, 25. Yep. yep.
2: Okay, so so one of the things you need to know to sort out some of these questions about acid base is whether the change in pH reflects the change in the PCO2 or whether there's something else affecting it. So... So if we take a change in PCO2, what change in pH would we expect?
0: So you can take that times 0.08. So your delta pH equals your 0.08 times delta PCO2.
2: Good. And and that would be for an acute change. For a chronic change, we usually use 0.03. Although they usually want to ask you a chronic question, it'll usually be an acute change. Um, The the other way I remember it is 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 the pH will change by 0.1 for every 12 point change in CO2. So, okay. so if the if the CO2 goes from 40 to 52, then your pH should go from 7.4 to 7.3. Okay. But but either way, the 0.08 or or the 0.1 for every 12 uh, will get you there, and that should be your expected change in pH. So we'll talk about another another quick and easy way to do it. Uh, to know if the change in CO2 is just normal respiratory compensation for a metabolic acidosis or alkalosis, uh, and, and, and this, is a, this is a real easy one, is your CO2 should equal the number that's after the decimal point in the pH. So, so for example, if you have a, a pH of 7.28 and a PCO2 of 28 and a bicarb of 16, because the the c o two of twenty eight and the seven point two eight, the twenty eight twenty eight are equal, that that tells you that your c o two change is in response to some kind of metabolic. So that would be a primary metabolic acidosis, and then that respiratory change was compensatory. Oh, okay. Makes so sense. so we talked about you talked about you know the important factors and looking at the pH. and actually, whenever I get a blood gas problem, I don't look at the pH first because, remember, you can, you can have a complex disorder with a pH of 7.4 if they're balancing each mm-hmm. other out. So, actually, what, what I do is I look at the CO2 and then, you know, remember, start with a CO2 of 40 as normal. So, first thing I look at is the CO2 and if it's high, I write down respiratory acidosis and if it's low, I write down respiratory alkalosis. Then I look at the bicarb or base excess, whichever they give you, and same thing. If the bicarb is high, I write metabolic alkalosis. If the bicarb is low, I write metabolic acidosis. And then I look at the pH and, and see which direction the pH is going. And then you look at the answer choices they give you. And most of these, most of these they're asking you to just identify what disorders are present. So, so right there, you've answered it. If you... If you had a high CO2 uh, and you wrote down respiratory acidosis and a low bicarb metabolic acidosis, then you have a combined respiratory metabolic acidosis and and you look for that answer and that should be your answer. And then those calculations we just talked about, those are really only required if they're not looking for a simple, you know, which which two disorders are present. Sometimes they'll ask you, they'll be asking you, what's the primary disorder? You know, is, is the metabolic acidosis the primary or is the respiratory alkalosis the primary and, and those compensatory? And, and, but usually you'll be able to tell that from the history they give you because they'll, they'll give you a patient who is over-narcotized and, and you know, the primary then is going to be a respiratory acidosis, Right or a patient is hyperventilating, you know the primary is going to be a respiratory alkalosis. So, so that's how I approach them, and we can look at a couple of those. Um, when we, We'll get to some examples. So, so let's talk about metabolic acidosis. And, of course, the first thing you have to do to sort out what kind of metabolic acidosis is, is calculate what?
0: So you calculate your anion gap in these patients.
2: Good, and the formula for that?
0: Uh, so that's your, your sodium plus your potassium, and then you subtract your chloride plus your bicarb.
2: Good. And the normal should be 12 to 16, and so you're either going to have a gap acidosis or a non-gap acidosis. So if you have a gap acidosis, what are the common causes going to be?
0: So that's your mud piles mnemonic that we've learned back since the beginning of medical school. So your your methanol, uremia, uh, DKA, your peraldehydes, which I've never seen, uh, your isoniazid, lactis, lactic acidosis, ethylene glycol, and then uh, salicylates or aspirin.
2: Good, and and the usual ones they'll get they'll almost always if they give you a gap it's going to be a lactic acidosis, a diabetic ketoacidosis, a salicylate overdose. Um, yeah, like you said, they'll rarely ask you about the other ones. So what if you have a non-gap acidosis?
0: So I, I think of ostomies or small bowel fistulas, uh, lactulose, or other things. Oh, yeah,
1: iatrogenic from sodium chloride, like hyperchloremic uh, metabolic acidosis, good. Uh, your
2: renal tubular acidosis. Is, yep.
0: There is a mnemonic uh, for that, too. I can't remember what it is, though.
2: The other big cause would be diarrhea. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so the big ones for a non-gap acidosis are you gave them too much sodium chloride, they have a renal tubular acidosis. They're having diarrhea. The other ones are the ileal conduit is a classic one they'll mm-hmm. ask you about. So a ureteral diversion mm-hmm. of a non-gap acidosis. And then any medication.
1: Well, so,
2: yeah, carb- carbonic anhydrase inhibitors.
0: And then uh, mafenide and acetate. The,
2: the mnemonic, the mnemonic I use for that is heart CCU. And so so the H is hypoadosterone or, or Addison's. And then E is expansion, so sodium chloride expansion, acid ingestion, renal tubular acidosis. The T is for trots or you can remember turds, <laughs> diarrhea. And then CCU is carbonic anhydrase, chronic pyelo, and then U is the ureteral diversions. Okay, so let's talk about metabolic alkalosis. And what's the most common cause, especially on the boards?
0: That's almost always your NG suction. So you get your hypokalemic metabolic alkalosis.
2: Good. So so that's one. And then there's one other one.
1: Ooh. Contraction
2: alkalosis? Yeah, yes. which would be the the CHF patient who is getting diuresed, and you just over-diurese them. So let's say you have a CHF patient who you're diuresing, and the bicarb is now 54, and the sodium is 130, the chloride is 90. So, So obviously you have a metabolic alkalosis, and what's your treatment? A contraction alkalosis.
1: So you could either replace some of their volume or if you're still digressing them, you, you know, theoretically can do the diamox, um, give the yeah. diamox. But I think mostly they're probably going to be going for giving them some of their volume back.
2: Yeah. But what's the most important thing you have to give them back or replace? Uh,
1: sodium or like um, sodium. Chloride.
2: Chloride. So so, replace, so replacing their chloride for a contraction alkalosis is the most important thing you have to give them back. So, so uh, we'll give you the uh, patient who's undergoing surgery. He has an NG tube, and they suck out three liters from his NG tube during the case. And after the surgery, he gets a blood gas, and his pH is 7.55, his PCO2 is 52, and his bicarb is 40. So what's the underlying acid base disorder?
1: Okay. So his CO2 is fifty-two, so that's high. So that's a respiratory acidosis. His bicarb is forty, so that's a metabolic alkalosis.
2: Uh,
1: and he's alkalotic, so it's a underlying it's a metabolic alkalosis with a respiratory compensation.
2: Excellent. Excellent. And and again, just you started with the CO two. So if they asked you what, what Abnormalities are present, the answer would be a combined respiratory acidosis and metabolic alkalosis. If they ask you which one's primary, then you pretty much know that from the history. You got acid sucked out mm-hmm. of his stomach, so the metabolic component is going to be primary.
1: And you can always look correct me if I'm wrong, but you can always look at, at there and you can look at the pH because they're never going nobody's ever going to overcorrect with the compensation. Yes. So that would give you your
2: primary. Exactly. Uh, and then, and, and you can also see it's pretty close to that decimal point rule. So the pH is 7.55 and the PCO2 is 52. So, so th- those are almost equal, which tells you that the, the primary component is metabolic. Um, now we have a patient who got admitted in a coma and gets a blood gas. And the PCO2 is 16, the bicarb is 5, and the pH is 7.1.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you have uh you look at your CO two, uh, well you said sixteen, so you have uh, that's a respiratory alkalosis. Sure. And and then you have a bicarb what was it you said five? Yep. Uh, so that's a that would be considered a, a metabolic acidosis. Um yep. so you would be it would be a primary it's a metabolic acidosis with a respiratory compensation.
2: Yeah. So it's, it's a metabolic acidosis with with an attempt at respiratory compensation, but obviously it's not very well compensated because the pH is 7.1. So, so the primary disorder is the metabolic acidosis, and there is a respiratory alkalosis present, but it's certainly not compensating because the pH is 7.1. Yep. All right, last uh, question. So, we got a climber climbing a mountain, and he reaches an altitude of 5,000 meters above sea level. What's going to happen to his arterial PCO2 and his pH?
1: So his PCO2 is going gonna, gonna, gonna to go down because uh, he's going to be hyperventilating, yep. um, and his pH is going to go up.
2: Good. So he's going to have, and what disorder is he going to have?
1: Uh, respiratory alkalosis.
2: Good. Okay. We'll do, let's do one more. Um, you have a patient whose PC, pH is 7.5, PCO2 is 50, and bicarb is 35.
0: So CO two is high, so you have a respiratory acidosis. Um, what was the bicarbonate? I'm sorry,
2: thirty
0: five. Thirty five. Uh, so that is a metabolic uh, alkalosis, and you have a pH of seven point five. So it's a metabolic uh, alkalosis
2: with with, a, with respiratory yeah, with, conversation with a compensatory respiratory acidosis. Mm. Good. Okay. Great. All right. You ready for some quick fire? electrolyte acid base let's do it yep let's do it okay remember there's no discussion just you should know the answer as the question is being read okay the cation that determines serum osmolarity sodium primary mm-hmm. intracellular cation potassium so sepsis resuscitation bolus amount in cc's per kg this is, this is the new sepsis guidelines.
1: 20 cc's per kg.
2: 30 cc's per kg.
1: 30 cc's per kg.
2: Okay. You pediatric patient who needs volume. What do you bolus them? What's the volume you bolus them with?
0: That's 20 cc's, 20 a gig. cc's per kg.
2: Good. How about blood products?
0: 10 cc's, 10 a gig. cc's per kg.
2: Okay. You have an EKG with peaked T waves and a K of 6.5. What's your next therapy?
0: You do calcium gluconate.
2: Good. You have a patient on the liver transplant list who was started on a water pill by his PCP. He doesn't know what it was. Now he presents with a potassium of 2.5. What's the etiology?
0: Iatrogenic, Um, Lasix.
2: Good. What if his K was 5.5?
1: Spironolactone.
2: Excellent. Great. Okay, so... You're correcting a patient who came in severely hyponatremic with 3% normal saline, and they then developed spastic quadriplegia. Uh,
1: Central pontine myelinolysis.
2: Excellent. So you have a patient who is hyponatremic. You put them on free water restriction, and that is not working. They are still hyponatremic. So
0: then you can do your 3% normal saline.
2: Okay. Any drugs you can give them? The
0: oh the vaptans that's right and then you also Good. do diuresis
2: yeah so that would be the patient you can give a vaptan or demeclocycline and the vaptan works on what receptors in the kidney uh, v2 v2 you have a baby with pyloric stenosis who's been having emesis for one week
1: Hypochloremic, hypokalemic uh, metabolic uh, alkalosis
2: and for a bonus what's the urinary abnormality That's your paradoxical
1: Paradoxical, uh,
0: acid acid Man, I was excited about that one.
2: (laughs) Urine will be acidic. Um, What would be the effect of acidosis on the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve?
0: So that's a left shift.
2: So you have a pH of 7.1. So what's that effect going to be on oxygen unloading?
0: So you're going to increase oxygen loading for these patients. What's that? You would increase oxygen loading.
2: You're going to increase oxygen unloading. Yeah. It will unload more readily in tissue. So actually, it will improve tissue oxygen delivery. Okay. So you gave a patient large volume resuscitation with Hextend, and they are now bleeding in the OR.
1: Platelet dysfunction.
2: Excellent. Okay. So you have a patient with a marked metabolic alkalosis, and now they're having decreased respiratory drive. What drug could you give them to help their metabolic alkalosis? Uh Diamox. Good. Carbon. You have a patient with high Ng tube output.
0: So that's your metabolic alkalosis.
2: Yep, hypochloremic. How about prolonged emesis? Same thing. Yep. Okay, how about severe diarrhea? Uh hypokalemia. Okay, and what about acid base?
1: Oh, so there'll be uh, uh um uh, metabolic acidosis.
2: Yep. Good. How about the mountain climber? Respiratory alkalosis. Okay. Now you post update two after a Whipple, somnolent on the ward, and pinpoint pupils. They're all marketized.
1: Oh yeah, oh, okay. so
2: respiratory I said
1: alkalosis. Acid.
2: Respiratory acidosis. Mm. Patient who's got an ileal conduit and high output.
1: Metabolic uh, acidosis. acidosis. What kind? A non-gap.
2: Non-gap. Excellent. All right. All right. Uh, Love it. I couldn't stump you again. So that's all the, uh, that's all the quick fires for this one. So, so hopefully that covers most of what they might ask you on uh, the boards for the ever-exciting fluids, electrolytes, and acid base.
0: Until next time, dominate the day.